Okay, cool. Why hasn't everything already disappeared? So, this is a good question, especially considering Baudrillard's other texts. So, to kind of contextualize uh, the basis for this question, uh, we could think of this in terms of what he calls a, uh, sorry, a non-contradictory form of simulation, that is the arrival of a sort of perfection in terms of social organization or, you know, cultural understanding that, do, that eradicates uh, negativity, that eradicates contradiction in almost any form in favor of, of a kind of Americanized perfectibility. So we arrive at this point and coming up to this point, we achieved a sort of escape velocity, velocity, as he says it in the illusion of the end, where we have left the earth in a sense. So Getting to this speed and arriving at this point, Baudrillard now asks, why hasn't everything disappeared? Why are there the remnants of some things? And it is important to note that looking as far back as texts like seduction, where seduction is the thing that opposes this kind of perfectibility to some extent, seduction can never be eradicated completely. It will always remain to some extent. So another term that we haven't gotten into really in much detail on this channel that will come out in his even later texts uh, is a illusion. So illusion performs this function too, uh, opposing the kind of bringing into being everything or bringing onto stage everything so that it can be analyzed, dissected, and understood. So he begins this book then saying, let us speak then of a world from which human beings have disappeared. And then it is important that he notes that it's a question of disappearance, not exhaustion, extinction, or extermination. The exhaustion of resources, the extinction of species, these are physical processes or natural phenomena. So as he speaks of disappearance here, this cannot be attached with some kind of uh, physical process or something that we can observe or quantify or understand. Because if we know anything about Baudrillard is that he's automatically uh, wary of these types uh, of, of approaches to understanding the world. He wants to opt for the, you know, the abstract things that can't be understood or seen, for instance, like the underlying structures of simulation that are guiding us, you know, somewhat surreptitiously. So before proceeding with this dissection or this consideration of the disappearance of the human, he asks first about the disappearance of the real. So this has a fundamental connection to one of his earlier texts, The Perfect Crime, where he's considering the, uh, the death of reality, to some extent, in favor of these hyper-rational or hyper-real modes of existence. So we have talked enough, he says, and this is on page 10, we have talked enough about the murder of reality in the age of the media, virtual reality, and networks, without inquiring to any degree when the real began to exist. Which is ironic, because he does, in fact, do that. But in, okay, well, I'll spend a moment on this. Uh, in Symbolic Exchange and Death is when he first kind of uh, lays this out. When he lays out when the real, that is, uh, what occurred in second-order simulation, or simulacrum, uh, when, uh, that is when reality began. So it's odd that he says that here, but whatever. So if we look closely, we see that the real world begins in the modern age with the decision to transform the world 
and to do so by means of science, analytical knowledge, and the implementation of technology. That is to say, it begins, in Hannah Arendt's words, with the invention of an Archimedean point outside the world. On the basis of the intervention of the telescope by Galileo and the discovery of modern mathematical calculation by which the natural world is definitely alienated. So what he's saying about Arendt here is uh, this comes out of the human condition, the book, the human condition, when Arendt says that there was at some point in modernity this shift from contemplating the world with the human faculties, like what is the human capable of uh, theorizing or philosophizing or reasoning through, it went from that to becoming something that can be had to be seen and mapped and understood in a way that took uh, the process of understanding the world outside of the world itself. So the m- removal of the Archimedean point from on the earth through our reason onto another kind of extraterrestrial plane from which we can look back on the earth and see it as a neutral objective sphere that can be completely understood. So with the advent of reality in this way is when humans began to disappear for Baudrillard. And, in effect, he says almost ironically, it's the same time that reality began to disappear. So this almost comes down to uh, almost like an ontological condition of bringing something to light. So, by representing things to ourselves, by naming them and conceptualizing them, human beings call them into existence at the same time they hasten their doom, subtly detach them from their brute reality. So this is probably, in my mind, one of the most important concepts that runs through all of Baudrillard's works. That is the relationship between observing and, in effect, bringing into being or bringing into reality and how that reality is then shapes that person who brought it into being. For example, uh, there's another moment when Baudrillard is talking about the relationship between a lab rat and some kind of lab person. So the lab person, when he's trying, he, it's a he apparently, is trying to convince or uh, condition the rat to eating certain food, like at a certain time. Uh, he believes himself to be superior to the rat in every way. The rat is just an object. So what Baudrillard says is that, well, we don't really know. I mean, the rat could be playing a ruse on the lab person tricking the lab person into giving the rat food at these kind of specific times. So this is the idea of reversibility for Baudrillard, which is so important to grasp his work in in my mind. So in the case of the lab person and the lab rat, there is a reversal as to who has the upper hand or who holds the quote-unquote power. Um, So in this case, We can understand the reversal occurring when there's the idea of bringing something into being also marks its demise, how it will also crumble because it got brought into being. And this serves as the basis for much of his critique of Foucault. So when Foucault is talking about power, Baudrillard is wondering, okay, how is the way that you're talking about power in that it constructs it as a very almost powerful thing? Uh, Baudrillard asks of Foucault, how 
is it, or to what extent does your discussion of power in this capacity actually subtly reaffirm power and how it gets rid of the possibility for reversal, how it denies the agency to the people that are supposedly being affected by this power. So this problem extends into the domain of our desires, for example, where there's a lot more to be gained from desiring something than by having that desire fulfilled. Because the desire for something changes you, right? It makes you alter to get that thing uh, or whatever it is. Whereas once you have it, you can comfortably fall back in, into the comfort of yourself. So of this, uh, Baudrillard says that, but what is even more paradoxical is the exactly opposite movement by which concepts and ideas, but also fantasies, utopias, dreams, and desires vanish into their very fulfillment. So by being fulfilled, they lose any sort of appeal. That's why, you know, the chase is greater than the, the catch or, oh crap, how does it go? Uh, why do I forget it? Yeah, like the, the chase is better than the catch or something, which is especially true today, where Baudrillard then talks about how things are made hyper or omnipresent, where whatever we want, we can, we can get it in the form of its virtual, you know, manifestation or, or, or anything else. Almost nothing is off limits in this world for Baudrillard. And when the world becomes perfectly objective, he says that um, having become purely operational, the world no longer has need of our representation. Instead, there no longer is any possible representation of it. So, uh, whereas representation would allow some kind of mobility in the thing that was being re represented, the world's total operationality or its perfection allows for very little mobility. Hence, no no real possible possibility for change or development. So, the kind of uh, Deleuzean fantasy of deterritorialization, or at least the poor reading of Deleuze might have it, uh, is not open for Baudrillard here. So Baudrillard doesn't see the world today in advanced globalized capital as being a world that allows for kind of infinite possibilities, but it's rather a foreclosing of possibility. So thus, he says on 16, the modern world foreseen by Marx, driven on the work of the negative by the engine of contradiction became by the very excess of its fulfillment another world in which things no longer even need their opposites in order to exist in which light no longer needs shade the feminine no longer needs the masculine or vice versa good no longer needs evil and the world no longer needs us because humans as they have been historically are messy distraught confused it's better for the world to just get rid of that messiness because the world has found a way to move beyond the dialectic the world has found a way to define itself not in relation to the other but by its eradication of the other by its uh, assimilation of the other so in effect we have been reduced then because we are still around you know for now you know humans that walk around talk to one another go to their jobs whatever but what it means to be a human is not the same thing, hence the, his ability to say that humans are, have disappeared. So this is a very similar thesis to the one that he puts forth about the Gulf War, where the Gulf War was a war. But he says that because it didn't subscribe to what how wars have been conventionally fought in the past, 
And this is just one of the things he focuses on. It wasn't a war, right? Calling it a war just hides the fact that it was like an invasion. So then he continues here. It is here we see that the mode of disappearance of the human is precisely the product of an internal logic of a built-in obsolescence of the human race's fulfillment of its most grandiose project, the Promethean project of mastering the universe, of acquiring exhaustive knowledge. All right, so I think it'd be important now to make the distinction between humans as they were and humans as they ostensibly are now. So in the past, the human was something that was indeterminate. So the human was grounded by their sort of uh, community or their the limits of their um, kind of epistemological understanding. Sure, that, po- that made them in a sense uh, that restricted their possibility. But today, we're seeing a greater restriction. We're seeing the totalizing restriction of what can constitute virtually anything because it is mediated by the very logic of information, by the logic of speed, by the logic of uh, globalization, of universalization, of perfectibility, of science, of technology, all of these things that are taken for granted that work at a global level to essentially uh, disseminate America to the world, which is, a, you know, we can take Baudrillard to task here and say, okay, this is a, a bit of a simple reading, um, but he makes a good point in that we are seeing something of a shift. So this, this contrasts pretty heavily with how, uh, for example, post-human, some critical post-human thinkers imagine the death of the human or what comes after the human, where for them, you know, they see it as possibility. Very similar coming out of Haraway here. So the cyborg being that site of indeterminacy, right? So almost anything is possible. Whereas Baudrillard is saying, not quite. It seems as though what is actually happening is a sort of uh, imprisonment in the virtual. So any sort of possibility that we are granted is defined by even more codified and strict limits than before. So we should make a distinction then between what happens on the surface, where there might be the kind of rhizomatic possibilities of becoming or anything like that. But underneath the system lies the ideological uh, oppressive mechanisms of you know science and rationality and, and the virtual and all that that shape and form us. Disappearance, then, is almost a strategy. It's almost a response that we, we employ in the face of this foreclosure. So we're trapped, right? So what are we to do? Well, we are to disappear. That is our way out. So he says, and this we're going to get into some Nietzsche here, not directly, but I, you, we have to. Uh, so he says on 21, disappearance may be conceived differently. So that is, uh, to contextualize this, he says that we don't move in a kind of linear process towards uh, disappearance. That's not what's going on here. It doesn't go reality, simulation, then disappearance. Uh, In fact, it goes, oh, how would it go? Uh, To be honest, it would probably go simulation, reality, simulation, and then at some point we're like, screw this, disappearance. So of this, he says, (laughs) it probably didn't make any sense, but whatever. Disappearance may be conceived differently from the linear fashion. He says, as a singular event and the object of a specific desire, the desire no longer to be there, which is not negative at all. Quite to the contrary, disappearance may be the desire to see what the world looks like in our absence, or to see beyond the end, beyond the subject, beyond all meaning, beyond the horizon of disappearance, 
if there still is an occurrence of the world, an unprogrammed appearance of things, a domain of pure appearance of the world as it is, and not of the real world, which is only ever the world of representation, which can emerge only from the disappearance of all the added values. So, is he saying there's a real world outside of human perception? Holy God. Don't tell Kant. <laughs> uh, or tell Kant. I don't know. Um, but this is an important distinction to make, and it's one that he takes from Nietzsche, not here, but at another at other points. Uh, and that's the distinction between the real world and the apparent world. So the real world in Nietzsche, and I hope I'm not mixing this up, but the real world in Nietzsche is the world, kind of ideal world, created, you know, uh, by the jackals of political and social thought, the philosophers that, you know, point us in the direction of a perfect world or how the world should be understood or anything like that. And the apparent world is the world that we all see, right? So, you know, the desk and the pen and the wall and the colors, like all that type of stuff. So in this, how Baudrillard frames it, he says that there is the world, what he calls the unprogrammed appearance of things being the apparent world. So that's the world that just kind of exists. So he's wondering, maybe this whole strategy of disappearance is a way for us to see if there really is something underneath. And we could recall then the beginning of simulacra and simulation when he's talking about the uh, the Borgia map, right? The map that covers the territory perfectly. Our strategy of disappearance is to get a sense of, is there anything underneath the map? is Or is it always already the map? And this strategy of disappearance, he says quite funnily, that this is this is an art. It's an art for him, not a, not in a cultural or aesthetic sense, he says, but something closer to a martial art, like a got a fighter, fighter way to disappearance. So disappearance is something to be desired then for Baudrillard, and he says at another place, the key isn't to die, the key is to disappear. So how do you disappear? Which he never really says how do you how do you disappear, uh, but we can speculate. You know, I'm doing. I'm probably fucking it all up doing all these videos about Baudrillard because uh, he probably wants to disappear, right? I mean, he, he he's dead. So, anyways, uh, in the face of this disappearance or the threat of disappearance being mobilized, uh, we erect various ways to keep bodies going, to keep people alive. So, for example. Uh, in the form of cloning, computerization, the networks, for example, Baudrillard says that we use these as sites to keep the body going, to kind of ward off the possibility of disappearance in an always ever present uh, kind of presentation of oneself. So what this disappearance does look like in just as confusing a fashion as ever uh, is like this. So he says that the great disappearance is not than simply that of the virtual transmutation of things, of the mise en abyme of reality, but that of the division of the subject to infinity, of a stereal pulverization of consciousness into all the interstices of reality. We might say at a pinch that consciousness, the will, freedom is everywhere. It merges with the course of things and as a result becomes superfluous. Uh, so we might get a sense of Deleuzean schizophrenic here, and Guattarian, I should say, uh, but still, it's you know it's difficult to reconcile because everything that Baudrillard points to in the form of a kind of resistance, 
which there are resistive moments in Baudrillard. It's important to know. Uh, um, my God. Oh, did I lose that thought? Um, wow. I'm still recording. Good job. Yeah, there are resistive points, sorry, in Baudrillard. And they come out in weird forms. So one of the big, big ones is like graffiti. In his early work, like he was like, he thought graffiti was, you know, a great revolutionary act. That is because for him, it smashes like the logic of what he called the code at the time. So the kind of logic of perfection, kind of logic of equivalence uh, in favor of a kind of radical ambiguity. Because the uh, coming into being of a work of graffiti art can't be mapped or understood. And often it can't even be discerned as to what it is. So as a thing in itself uh, or as a uh, as an embodied thing, it can't be traced as to where the next one is going to come about. And even in the form of content, it's difficult to, to understand. And therefore, it evades the logic of representation and the logic of uh, sight that pervades today. But it is important to note that disappearance isn't always a good thing. So he says that, yeah, we could say we could, we've seen the disappearance of disease in many ways, uh, but that's something that he's very skeptical about. So if we find ways to fully inoculate the human body from disease, then we uh, kind of take the we disembody the body, right? We make the body uh, more susceptible to even greater disease diseases. Not only uh, viral, like uh, infectious uh, bacteria or virus-based diseases, but social diseases as well, which is a thesis he develops in uh, in some other texts that you know I'll get to at some point in late work. So this slides us into one of the other kind of broad domains that Baudrillard is interested in in his kind of in his later work. That is photography. So photography performs a very interesting function for him. So he says, in the end of the singular moment of the photographic act, since the image can now be immediately erased or reconstructed. So in the end of the irrefutable testimony of the negative, both the time lag and the distance disappear at the same time and with them that blank between object and image that was the negative. The traditional photograph is an image produced by the world, which, thanks to the medium of film, still involves a dimension of representation. The digital image is an image that comes straight out of the screen and becomes submerged in the mass of all the other images from screens. It is the order of flow and is a prisoner to the automatic operation of the camera. When calculation and the digital win out over form, when software wins out over the eye, can we still speak of photography? So here he's talking about the transition from, you know, photography with a camera to digital photography. Uh, so he's a bit of a Platonist here, I guess. Uh, he's considering what happens when these new technologies, how do they reframe or reshape in a negative way, uh, what it means in this case to be doing photography. So for for Baudrillard, and this comes out in his uh, one of his other pieces, uh, Impossible Exchange. He has a, an essay about photography, which we'll get to at some point. But in that text, he says that, and the, the English translation of this has been not great, or there ha there are many different translations of it for some reason. But he says that photography and his broader project is what he calls uh, phenomenologie sauvage, right? So it's kind of 
uh, wild phenomenology or kind of savage phenomenology. So it it's a kind of phenomenology off the rails. So it takes there, you know, to be a world, but it is a world of appearances, really in, in as crazy a fashion as we might understand it. So what the photograph does for Baudillard in how he theorizes it in other places was it kind of presents the world as it is, which is, you know, it's like, wait, wait a second, pump the brakes here, Baudillard. Like, you, you seem to be uh, losing your mind. But he makes the case that, and he, he makes a distinction between uh, photographing humans and photographing, like, animals, where he says he doesn't photograph humans because they don't, they aren't real, in a sense, that humans are, uh, you know, always prepared for the photograph, whereas the animal or the rock or whatever uh, is is never ready for the photograph and by, in effect, is then always ready for the photograph because it doesn't shape itself to meet the gaze of the photograph. It just is in the world. So that's where the kind of radicality of photography lies. But all that is stripped away when we enter the realm of the digital for Baudrillard, where he says that um, uh, metaphorically, the sophistication of the play of presence and absence of appearance and disappearance, all the sophistication of the photographic act disappears with the coming of the digital. The photographic act causes the object in its reality to vanish for a moment. There's nothing of the sort in the virtual image, nor its digital capture, not to mention the magic of the image's emergence as it is developed. The kind of magic behind photography gets disappeared in the proliferation of images. So in the time when you photograph something, uh, and it's difficult to imagine why this type of thing wouldn't uh, kind of spill over into the contemporary digital forms but alas you know he's saying there and he is romanticizing photography um when we take a photograph with a camera we take that photograph and that's all it is it's a photograph and in doing so we take that object that we photographed outside of itself but then put it back into itself because that object let's say it's a rock photographing a rock for some reason um, is taken outside of itself by being photographed because it is not the sum of its parts as a physical thing in the world it then becomes something that is represented but in effect because it is represented through the camera we are then made privy to the fact that it is always only ever represented so there's a kind of holistic circle going on that affirms, that denies the object as it is, and then affirms it in the photograph. And that goes away when we have a proliferation of images because that kind of relationship is stripped away. So it's no longer about calling into question representation or reality or anything like that, but it's just about photography, you know, for the means of photography. So the same understanding can apply to the advent of AI or virtual reality. So in the case of AI, what we are not seeing is an intimate uh, duplication of humans as we would have with photographing them, uh, but what rather we are seeing the proliferation of humans, kind of uh, pushing humans to their endpoint to some extent by taking the kind of perfect operational aspects of them in, you know, reducing everything to the 
brain in a sense putting that in a virtual sphere that disembodies them in almost every way and the same happens with virtual reality where reality is stripped of its negativity it's stripped of its ambiguity and then just made to be a kind of perfect operational representation of what we see out in the world that can be easily digested and understood so it's by taking these zones or these things outside of their own spaces that are open up to possibility that are open up open for negotiation and casting them in the spectral light of reality that makes them understood that makes them graspable that makes them essentially controllable so what then follows is the dissipation of space between things right so as i was saying earlier where there is the eradication of a kind of otherness in this framing of the world in a McLuhan-esque kind of global village way, we don't have the other. We don't have negativity. We don't have contradiction. We don't have anything that might oppose the central logic of the system to give it the opportunity to even identify itself. You know, you don't know what light is without dark or, or, or whatever. Uh, so by getting rid of all that, especially in the case of photography, where, the, where a radical distance is necessary in order to have the photographic act occur. Uh, without that, then we just enter a total, totally positive moment where everything is hyper-real and omnipresent. I know, I'm sure I sound like a broken record, but uh, that's the nature of Baudrillard's late work. It's, it's a lot of repeated stuff. So in Baudrillard's words, this can all be understood, at least in the, in the arrival of the digital, uh, as being what the digital lacks, so lacking the negative and all that. So he says, this is what the digital lacks. The time of emergence, failing which it is merely a random segment of the universal pixelization, which no longer has anything to do with the gaze, nor with the play of the negative, the play of distance. So in the face of this, right toward the end of the book, Baudrillard gives us some key questions, and they are as follows. So is everything doomed to disappear? Or more precisely, hasn't everything already disappeared? Now in brackets, which connects up with the very distant paradox from a philosophy that never was. Why is there something rather than nothing? Question two, why isn't everything universal? Question three, we are fascinated by the phantasm of an integral reality by the alpha and omega of digital programming. The real is the leitmotif and obsession of all discourses. But are we not far less fascinated by the real than by its vanishing, its ineluctable disappearance? Question four, which gives rise to the truly mysterious question, how does this irresistible global power succeed in undifferentiating the world, in wiping out its extreme singularity? And how can the world be so vulnerable to this liquidation, this dictatorship of integral reality, and how can it be fascinated by it? Not exactly fascinated by the real, but by the disappearance of reality. There is, however, a corollary to this. What is the source of the fragility of this global power, of its vulnerability to minor events, to events that are insignificant in themselves, rogue events, terrorism, but also the pictures of Abu Ghraib, etc. So, how can we say that these this the uh, cultural logic of 
the simulacrum of perfectibility, how hasn't it won yet? Well, for Baudrillard, he says that simply because it can never take over the kind of dualism that always permeates throughout the globe, the kind of uh, negativity as opposed to positivity. So he says at another point that um, the world, the only thing that will oppose globalization is the world. This occurs at a physical level as well as at individual local levels. So the world is something that will always oppose it simply by its being, you know, a closed off system. Uh, as soon as it gets encapsulated, it then posits its own uh, circumvention of that kind of encompassing of itself. But then things like, as he says, terrorism, that will always, always come out to disrupt the smooth uh, claim over the globe by a certain power or a certain authority. As he says, for duality can be neither eliminated nor liquidated. It is the rule of the game, the rule of a kind of inviolable pact that seals the reversibility of things. So that's about it. And then we have the last line saying, the end itself has disappeared. So, you know, there are a few ways to understand this. Um, this whole book, I would point us in the direction of one of his other texts, The Vital Illusion. So in that book he has, which is a collection of different talks he gave, I believe, he has a point when he says that perhaps with all this digitization, perhaps with all this technology, we are entering a new phase of ambiguity, a kind of new phase of illusion or a new phase of indeterminacy, and that we are perhaps being naive in thinking that this it's even possible to conceptualize uh, a totally perfectible world, which I think is a really interesting way to go about doing it. And I think that that gives us an answer to the question, why hasn't everything already disappeared? And that's simply because everything opposes the logic of, I guess, total disappearance. Because as he said, sometimes disappearance is a strategy to get out of, a, of an oppressive system. Maybe these things don't have a desire to leave that oppressive system, maybe because they're totally comfortable in it and, you know, have created a new game with new rules and new mysteries within that system. Uh, but that's, you know, that's just me. I'd like to know what other people think, obviously, but otherwise, if you, you know, made it this far, if I didn't put you to sleep, then hope you enjoyed it. But if not, whatever, you know, you know where the dislike button is. Anyways.